Cash has been around for thousands of years, but Canadians are increasingly turning to new methods such as mobile wallets and contactless solutions to make everyday payments. No matter what the future of payments holds, Interact will be there to help Canadians transact with confidence across multiple platforms and devices. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca. Hello everyone, it's Friday, March 1st. We're getting there. We are getting closer to spring. This is good news. I've got the regular crew here, David Reevely from the Canadian Press and Shannon Proudfoot from McLean's. How are you both? Cold. Cold. <laughs> Tired. You're yeah. about to get <laughs> yeah. what really we? you're about to get really oh hot though. Goodness. It's hot in here. Um it's already been a busy morning, I should like let alone like week. It's been a busy morning. Uh, another cabinet shuffle has taken place to fill the the post of uh, Veterans Affairs, which was um, previously held by Jody Wilson Raybould. It's now being led by Lawrence McCauley, uh, who will act as uh, Associate Minister of National Defense. Mary Claude Bipo, a currently Minister of International Development, becomes Minister of Agriculture and Agri-Food. And Miriam Monsef becomes Minister of Inter- International Development while also retaining her role as Minister for Women and Gender Equality. Is that correct? Yes. That is correct. So not not crazy. No, not crazy news there. Shuffle. It's, a I mean, shuffle. it's about as small as cabinet shuffles get. Yeah. Right. Um, but these are actually some delicate sensitive files. Uh, right. Bibo as agriculture minister, she's actually, as I understand it, Canada's first female agriculture minister. Right. For some reason, she is, it's going to be her job to sell um, a reduction in the, the power of supply management to dairy farmers mm. in Quebec. Uh, and I think one of the first things she said going up to the microphone at Rideau Hall afterwards is that she represents a, a rural Quebec riding. She's very close to producers, including dairy farmers, uh, and she looks forward to discussing these things with them and how they'll be compensated for it. Mm. And Lawrence McCauley gets to deal with a new benefits regime uh, yes, for right. veterans that the parliamentary budget officer reported last week uh, will not be as generous for people who are leaving the forces now as the plan that uh, it replaced. Right. So the, the cabinet shuffle is small, but these are these, these are some are things files. that could blow up. That was another piece of news that I felt, again, like the, the, these, these stories have come out that have been missed or not missed, but probably just not not buried under an avalanche of other Mm. buried under an avalanche of of other stories and and particularly one story that we'll get into um okay also all this relates to what we're going to chat about first so the snc lavalin controversy the individual at the heart of this story jody wilson raybould appeared before the house of commons justice committee on wednesday for a whooping three-hour session she provided a lengthy opening statement it was actually more than 30 minutes Mm -hmm. um it ended up being more than 30 minutes. She had she had requested that. And then subs- subsequent details and the multiple rounds of questioning. So this was her opportunity to tell her truth, as she said, about the allegations of sustained and inappropriate pressure placed on her in regards to the uh, to granting SNC-Lavalin a deferred prosecution agreement and thus avoiding criminal trial. Um, so as we know, this was the, this was first detailed in a Globe and Mail report a few weeks back, but since then a lot has happened. We've seen people resign, others testify refuting the allegations. Wednesday was the first time we heard from Miss Wilson-Raybould herself, other than, you know, scrums and some letters that she's released, but we didn't, you know, we didn't even know that she would confirm the allegations, but she did that and more. She did that and more. It was she did, yeah. It, it was staggering. I mean, were you all glued to the 
TV sort of jaw drop. Whoa. Yeah, I was I was also sort of filing notes to someone else who was right. writing because our print deadline was the day after this, so that was fun for us. Um, yeah, That's I, cute. Your I print was, deadline was I, the day. I know. After. Yes, I, as soon as I said it, I met your eye, and I thought, okay, but we we just yes, we, we no. do things in a different way. Anyway, yep. yes, poor us with our print deadline twenty four hours later. Um, I was I have to admit I went into Wednesday sort of expecting it to be a bit of a deflated balloon. Yeah, I thought it was going to too. be underwhelming. I thought it was going to be very equivocal. I thought we were just going to come out of it confused and muddled. And we did not. No. We absolutely did not. I've always sort of said in like in conversation, you know, don't F with a reporter because they yeah. keep their receipts and <laughs> they record everything. Same goes for Same lawyers. Goes like that was lawyers. a prosecutorial masterwork of laying out her case. I mean, well, that's, that's it. And I actually was, that was one of the points that took me back was the records that she had kept from all of this, the text messages and, um, and whatnot. So anyway, let's, let's, uh, she set it up as a a timeline starting as far back as September and said there was this consistent and sustained pressure placed on her from September to December by 11 members of the PMO and other senior liberal officials. There was approximately 10 meetings, she said, about SNC and 10 phone calls. She made it clear that the following the decision made by the director of public prosecutions, um, who was overseeing the case, to not grant the company, SNC, a DPA, Jody Wilson-Raybould would not raise the issue with her colleague about changing that decision. She was firm on this. She said she had made up her mind as AG. Then, dot, 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 she and her, her, her staff start to get pinged by various actors within and close to the PMO. So first, it was finance ministers, uh, Bill Morneau's chief of staff. Mm-hmm. Ben uh, Chin. Ben Chin, who used to be a journalist. Once upon a time, yes. When I remember seeing him on TV growing up in Toronto, he worked for City and he worked for the CTV and he worked for okay. CBC and he's gone and been in politics for a while now. Okay. So that was the start of it. But the meetings and the phone calls continued on, some of which she says get increasingly concerning, including one with the prime minister himself in September. He brings up the DPA and SNC, of course, and says that there's a Quebec election and that he is the MP for for Papineau. For Papineau. And um, that, in her mind, crossed into a partisan zone. Um, and then there are subsequent meetings, many of them, where the issues brought up and, you know, there's this call to find a solution for the company. Um, and I think it was in that meeting she looked at the prime minister, something very chilling about when she said this, that like she looked at the prime minister and said something along the lines of like, are you trying to interfere with the independence of this case? And her telling of that meeting was distinct in fairly subtle, but it seems like important ways from his telling. Like he told us about that a week or two ago, mm-hmm. where he said, she recounted for me this conversation where I told her the decision was hers to make, I believe was his characterization, like his paraphrase. She said instead that she looked him in the eye and said, are you trying to interfere in this? And then he backed off and said, no, 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 no. So it seems like we're still back to this semantic game about direction versus pressure versus Mm -hmm. no, no, you go ahead and do what you want to do. Yes. A question I have. So, okay. Even if she did intervene in this case and say, hey, maybe we should reconsider a DPA. But on what grounds is the the question? As I understand it, she doesn't 
need grounds if she chooses to exercise this power. She can give instructions to the director of public prosecutions who answers to her. Right. And the director of public prosecutions has to carry them out. The minister has executive authority in this case. Uh, or, well, the minister actually in her capacity as attorney general, which is not the same thing as her capacity as justice minister. Which is another. <laughs> but she's got to write it down and it's got to be in public. And that means if... If I were the minister, I would want to know what I was going to say was my reason. And if I didn't believe in it, it's going to be my name that's on it, not the prime minister's name. He's going to take responsibility for it ultimately as the head of the government, but certainly not the names of the prime minister's aides. It's going to be my signature at the bottom of this piece of paper. Uh, I would want to feel that I was doing the right thing. In that case. Yeah. And this is not a power that has been used in this way before. Right. Um, um, I think it it's, was, used, it's used for policy. Right. For instructions to to federal prosecutors about how to handle particular types of cases. Right. But it's always been used categorically before, right? Yeah. As opposed Pro- to on an individual basis. So it's things like treat terror cases, plural, such and such a like X. Yeah. It's never been used before for intervening on a specific matter involving one company right. or entity. So. It sounds like to her, again, going back to what she found, she said in, in her testimony, she said it, nothing she felt was illegal. She said yeah. it was the points, it was the sustained efforts, and it was the political partisanship that, that became problematic. But it was interesting. I think it was a liberal MP in the committee ring uh, uh, said it was the role of the AG or the justice minister to uh, continuously reconsider the facts, um, you know, so... Yeah, there's a question of of at what point is that. enough enough? Yeah, and and in any prosecution, and in this case, she was acting essentially as a top prosecutor. In any case, you know things go on in court. People plead guilty in the middle of trials. Charges get withdrawn in the middle of trials. Like very much, much, much later in in any process than this. And so, it, as a as a a matter of principle, I think yeah, the. A prosecutor considers new facts and and reevaluates decisions and whatnot. As time goes on, I, I I don't think there's any problem with that in theory, but it doesn't. Again, in in if we take Wilson Rabel's account at face value, it doesn't sound like they were presenting her with new information. I see. Yeah, they were just new facts. Yeah, right. no, no, no. they that, were just trying to get her to change her mind based on substantially the same stuff she already knew, and that puts a bit of a different cast on it. A few people communicated around the table as well that her that that she should have um, and I've heard this afterwards written formally in communication to the prime minister that, that of her decision I, I don't think as attorney general she's answerable to the prime minister in that way mm. he can talk to her mm. as prime minister and she's attorney general slash justice minister yeah but it's I don't think it's the same as the the he, he is not, she answers to the crown in this capacity, not to the PM. So yeah. she could have defended herself. She might have, have put herself in a stronger kind of tactical position if she'd known this was coming, if she'd put stuff in writing and demanded that Trudeau only communicate with her in writing on this issue. Like there's a there's a bunch of stuff you can do that's kind of bureaucratic and administrative infighting that right. anyone who's worked in an office you know has encountered. Uh, if she's thinking, I really, I think this is done. I'm hoping this goes away. Does she really want to go to war with the boss? Right. I mean, knowing how things have turned out, she might, she might have yeah. done, done that. But I, I can certainly understand not thinking that way at the time. I mean, that goes into, it makes me think of another question of like, that in Canada, the AG is the same role as the 
justice minister, where in other countries that's not in the case. In the UK, and, they separated. Yes, and that might prevent some of this complication, just that in, in the sense of that the, the justice minister, sort of by nature of their job and their role in the cabinet, is expected to be partisan, whereas the AG is expected to be... It's the two hats thing, where one of your hats is partisan and one of them is supposed to be utterly independent. And I can see, I, I don't know what what the reasoning is for the way we've constructed in Canada, but that sort of seems inherently trickier yeah. than separating it out and saying, when as the AG, you're not sitting around the cabinet table, you, you are acting independently and kind of putting a bit of a glass wall around that right. position and that person. Wait, so another question here. When asked if she had the confidence in the leadership, I thought this was pretty interesting too, of the PM. She said she couldn't sit around the cabinet table anymore. Why stay as a liberal? I think that this is an interesting question. Um, do you think she's waiting for him to give her the boot? Or do you think that, you know, to, to make that first move? I, I don't know. <laughs> I, it, is, it is a good question, though. I mean, cabinet ministers do have a different kind of duty of loyalty to the prime minister than just members of the party do. Um, you know, they're, they're, all of this comes down to kind of the fine points of relationships and, Again, and we were talking power about this before. balances yeah. and that sort of thing. But as a cabinet minister, you do answer to the prime minister. Mm. As an MP, you don't actually officially answer to your party leader. You know, and you get caucus revolts. You don't get from from time to time. You don't generally get sitting members of a party all quitting yes. when they're not happy with the leader. They right. knife the leader <laughs> and get a, and get a new leader, but they stay. They stay par- right. Party members. Interesting. Um, it is not obvious to me, though. It is not obvious to me why Jody Wilson-Raybould stayed in cabinet. I yep. think that is a question that we have not had answered because if she felt I think there's a very strong argument that if she felt that she was being improperly pressured she should have resigned and said why publicly at the time rather than trying to tough it out and why she still wants to be a liberal MP is not obvious to me either then again according to her statement she did take the prime minister at his word that the reason she was being shuffled was not because of this I don't Think yes. I could be wrong. I don't think she said she took him at his word. I think she said because oh. she sort of said she had to be very careful what she could say there because oh, okay. of cabinet confidence only being lifted to the point when she was no longer attorney general. Mm. She said that when he made that phone call and told her she was being shuffled, she was quite careful about this. She said, I said that I felt it was as a result of my refusal right. to play along with SNC. They denied that and she just okay. let that sit. Okay. I think. Okay. Which again, she has proven herself to be quite intriguing and skillful at sort of like the image I keep having is that she keeps putting pieces of paper face down on a table in front of us and going, there's something on this piece of paper. I can't show you right now, but it's here. And then she, she waits for a mechanism by which it can be turned over. And it felt to me like that was another piece of paper she was putting down um, because she's been very clear about like the limits on what she can say and, and where that goes up to in the timeline. And there's an obvious narrative and political reason why we all very badly want to know what happened after that was a January 14th, the shuffle. She is a really good, I mean, she, as someone was saying the other day, like she's a hard witness to go up against. Like she's, she's pretty impressive. Yeah. She's a crown prosecutor. Yeah. Like she's been, grew up in a political family in in British Columbia. Her father was, I think was a hereditary uh, first nations chief. She's, she's steeped in this and she seems pretty good at it. She seems pretty darn yeah. good at it. I mean, I think there's also questions, too, of how much of this go has gone on. How much of this is just a regular sort of sausage-making process? You know, how much of this is just – this happens in every 
um, government, right? People talk with others about getting stuff done for the PM and, you know, working to find solutions for the PM and blah, blah, blah. But And that sort so, of seems like it's been the government's message now. And, and the yes. message of other cabinet ministers who are sort of speaking on behalf of the PM is, is just like there, there's been no dispute so far of the facts that she presented. It's more the picture they add up to and the, the kind of upshot of it. And I guess the obvious way to square her testimony with the prime minister saying, I completely disagree, right. is that this is just the way things are done, that she may have conceived of a problem with it, but it was not outside the realm of normal and or they believe they have a way to justify it. Right. And so on that, actually, so Trudeau's response, he he came out, um, so first it was Sheer, I guess, and then saying um, the conservative leader and then the NDP leader. Cheer came out, guns blazing, saying Trudeau needs to resign from his post. And then, you know, Singh calls for a public um, inquiry. And then Trudeau comes out smiling um, and kind of goes into job talk, a little bit of campaign talk, um, what he's proud of that the Justice uh, Committee, or sorry, the Justice Department is has completed over their time, over his time in power. Um, he refers, you know, to a lot of, to the Harper government. Canadians have to choose between which party they want. So it was a, it was kind of the start of this campaign talk. It, that was, I think, his response to Shear's call on him to resign. Right. Is Canadians can make up their minds in a few months. Yeah. I, I'm, and I'm certainly not going anywhere until then. Yeah. That was his... That was his. That was his way of return uh, fire. Yeah, it's sort of amazing in a way how as much detail was laid out for us on Wednesday, and there was considerable detail. There's still a lot of room for these subtleties, where intonation and how the conversation yeah. flowed. I mean, we obviously nobody had a recorder running, or they haven't chosen to tell us yet. Um, that there's still some. I wouldn't say confusion, but there's still room for interpretation. I think there's a lot of room for interpretation. Yeah. I think something that Shannon said almost at the beginning of this part of the discussion uh, is that she laid this case out like a prosecutor. And very often, once you've heard one side of a case in court, man, that sounds really damning. I know. And then you hear and the other you side the and other. you go, well, <laughs> you know, that's there's a I'm... reason why you get to present a defense. That's And one feeling. of the specific this is the court words case, in but... Butts' letter, too, was that he has evidence. That yeah. suggests that right. there's stuff, not just things to say. Yeah. Um, again, we're getting into other communications. And embanks, but yeah, I, I agree. I'm going back and weighing all the options here. So yeah, we do not know everything. You do we not know, know everything. everything. We do not. And since then, we know now that we'll hear from Jerry Butts, um, who put his name forward on Thursday in that letter uh, to request an appearance. Uh, Michael Wernick again, mm -hmm. clerk of the Privy Council. Um, and Natalie Drouin, who's, uh, who was Jody Wilson-Raybould's um, deputy minister. So we'll hear from, oh my goodness, it's going to be another big week. Best tweet of the day, I got to say, was from CBC's Power on Politics host Fashi Capellos. And she said, um, it, it's, it reads, JWR to Michael Cohen, colon, hold my beer. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought that it's was true. great. We gave, and then you, you followed up with, you know, we gave American Boy, politics. It was Wednesday a day. Yeah, yeah. Um, a run for their mind. Uh, like I had, I'm sure most Canadian reporters were the same. I had to debrief myself on the Cohen stuff the next day because I did not have any bandwidth left to absorb it that day. Yeah. Well, because if that ha if we weren't talking about the SNC stuff, I mean Cohen's news. That's that's huge news. So so let's get into that. Um, and I've got to admit, like we were just saying, like I I've tuned out American politics a little bit because of all that's been happening here. It's kind of been refreshing, but it's kind of making me feel a little bit anxious as well. But anyways, um, 
So as a, a big public hearing was happening here, south of the border, there was another big one going down. This one was seven, something like seven hours. Um, on Wednesday, President Trump's former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, stepped up to the bench and gave his alarming testimony, slamming Trump for being a racist, a con man, and a cheat, lying about just about everything. It was really frank and, and brutal. So if you back the train up a little bit here, this was Cohen's I want to say third time appearing before this specific committee for a decade. He was, uh, you know, fiercely loyal to the president, concealing these secrets and, and doing his dirty work allegedly. So he pleaded guilty last year after violating campaign finance laws and lying to Congress about all things related to the inner workings of the Trump White House and particularly with regards to the Mueller investigation. So given that he'll be, he will be heading. I'm right in saying he will be heading yes. to prison yeah. for three for three, three years. years. Okay. If found true, this was some pretty damning testimony. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. So, like, key takeaways. Cohen um, stated that Trump knew in advance about the, the coordination of the WikiLeaks, um, uh, that it would release damaging emails regarding Democratic leader Hillary Clinton in the run-up to the t- 2016 election. Um, the president had previously denied this. He said Trump lied about his involvement in Russia, r- like the Russian real estate um, endeavors, hotel, deal, hotel yeah. deals. It continued on through the campaign. Which continued on. Cohen had previously testified, and others have said, but Cohen had previously testified that it stopped much before they got into the presidential campaign. But this time around, he says that Trump saw money to be made out of Russia through his candidacy for president. Right. That it was just like a marketing scheme. Yeah. yeah. He said um, Trump operatives reimbursed him for this hush money made to um, Stormy, Stormy Daniels. Daniels. Yeah. Uh, who he had the signed checks. Oh, man, eh? Who had this affair with Trump. Um, and he said Trump, uh, you know, enhances and lowers his financial worth depending on when it suits him for tax purposes. So this was pretty alarming stuff. Um, and it was the first time someone inside the the, the Trump posse revealed this level of detail. Um, and what I found most sort of powerful about the testimony, well, there's two parts. Cohen's reference to the subtle code that Trump talks in, and it's sort of this, like, mafia speak, like... That never happened. Yeah. Tap, tap, tap on the <laughs> side of my nose. Right. Um, Will nobody take care of this problem for me? <laughs> Looks directly yeah. at the person. Yeah. Leaves a wad of money on the table. Yeah. Walks out. Death stare. So, like, yeah, this the subtleties in that. And, like, he was like, I spoke that code. I understood it. And then when he looked at the committee and said, I see you. This was I, so striking. This was so striking. Oh, my goodness. He's like, I look at you. I see you as me, like people who were following blindly this man, and I hope you can learn from me and, and the mistakes I've made and look at where I am now kind of thing. That was powerful. Astonishing. Yeah. Like, he, I think he said, I am responsible for your silliness. Like, I have been what you are doing now, which is enabling this man, and I helped to get your party and you to this point of, of toxic complicity. Now, if you, a lot of this requires you to take Cohen at his word this week that right. he really has had his, um, you know, Moment. kind of epiphany. Yeah. Um, it, but it was quite striking, right? Like he's just kind of ripping open his shirt and burying his, his chest yeah. and and just saying how sorry he is, that, that this is the only way he feels he can redeem himself personally. 
And what's also I found kind of remarkable is all the things that you you know you just laid out that he was illuminating about Trump or, or sort of proving in 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 some way are things that you kind of already had to know or assume, but yet seeing it laid out um, in specifics still has the power to kind of shock a bit. Like mm-hmm. I find that sort of weird duality of reaction, the kind of, well, of course, and still, holy cow, this is kind is of a strange happening. zone yeah. to be in. Yeah, and that someone that close to to Trump um, yeah. has said this. Like, Which, of course, Trump is now minimizing right. his role. Yeah. And, there, and oh, I think the, I think a bunch the, of lawyers. And I think <laughs> the line is, it's sour grapes. He was a yeah. loser. He got offloaded a long time ago. Now he's bitter. You know, he wanted yes. to go to prom with me, but I said no. And so now here we are. Oh, is this the love letter um, thing that, he, yeah, he's like, oh, he just yeah. really loved that. I mean, but yeah. For, for a guy who says not just, you know, Trump had people do dirty work. Guy who says, I did Trump's dirty work. Mm. Here are the instances where I did Trump's dirty work. Here is how it came to be. Here is what I did. Here is what the the, the repercussions were. Here is what has happened to me in my life. I mean, it... it That's true. To, to hear those words That's coming different. out of the mouth of someone who was one of Trump's thugs for a long, long time. An inner time. circle, it sounds yeah. like. Wow. It had yeah. an office in Trump Tower, walked into Trump's office virtually at will, and threatened people. I mean, I... I, I they... they Congresswoman asked him, how many times do you think you, you threaten people? 10 oh, times? Yeah, more. 50 Ooh. times? More. 100 times? More. 200 times? More. 500 times? Probably about 500 times. That is years. just insane. Like, like, it's, it's. I mean, if this is all true, it's just so much like a literal mob. It's crazy. I mean, um, I, yeah, I guess so what the Republicans on the committee were trying to do, I guess, is is from their perspective, like, pin him down as lying again. Right. They were saying, like, if you're saying you were a dirty liar and a cheat for all those years, well, how do we know you're not being a dirty liar now? Like, they're basically right. trying to completely put, like, torpedo his credibility. Um but they were very careful to not really engage much with the substance of his allegations Hardly because they don't want to go near that. So it was like oh. Trump was like the Voldemort in the room, right? We're like, <laughs> we're just not going to mention his name. We're going to talk all around him because they're trying to, but it's a tough needle to thread because they're trying to find a way to impugn Cohen's credibility without well, directly referencing the very specific and explosive allegations mm-hmm. he's making yeah. about the president. And that's what I've struck by. Like has to do with this, the, the question around impeachment too. Like, Cohen's testimony isn't enough to get the present. From what I from what I've been reading, is 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 not enough to get the impeachment process going. But but because I think Trump is strategically sort of aligns himself b- beside these around these uh, these fall guys. So he's not directly involved, but he has these minions who are doing the dirty work for him, and so it's hard to actually pin him down with doing anything that would that would force an impeachment process. But I think what was accomplished toward that end in that hearing, particularly with the Democratic members, is is it was it was getting other clues out in public. What was the name of this guy who was involved in this? Who did you say oh, knew about yeah. that? So it's, it was true. maybe ultimately more valuable as a fact-finding mission, as salacious as it was in and of itself. Um, oh, it's, right. it's what it gets out there in public view, and then there's, there's new leads to chase kind of thing. They kept being, yeah, like, so who else knows about this? So then they can use, because, yeah, arguably Cohen's not a totally reliable star witness, so they have other people brought in and... Yeah, this, which is how a, a prosecution like that works. Mm-hmm. You take you take a witness who is not in himself necessarily trustworthy, but then you go and you run down all the things that he's saying. Fun, let's find the documents. Let's find the corroboration. You know, no no one witness, especially not one with a record like Cohen, is going to be enough. But if he if he's telling the truth, he can point you to evidence that supports him. 
the thing, I mean, talking about impeachment, a couple of things. One, that requires the Republicans to, to be on board. The, uh, you need yeah. two-thirds majority in the in the Senate, and the Republicans will always control. I mean, it's, it's Senate, virtually yeah. inconceivable yeah, yeah. that the Republicans won't have at least 33 seats. But even with, even with Nixon, you know, an actual criminal president, provably, it took the, the tapes of right. him, his voice in the Oval Office talking about all the crimes they were going to do mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. the Republicans finally irrevocably turned on him. And the tide was was against him by, by that time, but it wasn't until the Supreme Court said, you've got to hand over the tapes, that the bottom completely fell out. So there's a really, really, really high standard for that kind of thing. And a long road to that, yeah. yes. Um, okay, let's move along here. So another space story. Was it last week that we talked about Oppie? Two weeks, Two weeks ago. ago. Okay, well, no. Okay. I'm still suffering from I'm it. still yeah. suffering yeah. from Oppie's like talk. But, <laughs> all right. He's cold. <laughs> just cold. Maybe. Um, up there in the dark. Still there. The, just because we the, stopped talking about it doesn't mean Oppie's the, not there. The dust is starting to accumulate yeah. around her wheels. Oh, poor oh rover. Oh, God, we're bad. Okay. So, uh, Canada's going to the moon. All yeah. 36 Yay, million of us. Moon. Uh, just <laughs> all 36 million. Just kidding. Just Climb kidding. aboard, guys. <laughs> but in all seriousness, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced that Canada would join a NASA-led uh, project called the Lunar Gateway Mission to build a new space station that would orbit the moon and uh, serve as a, a base for further and deeper space exploration. We're going near to the moon. We're going near to the moon. Almost to the moon. Or. Yes, very moon. close to the moon. Yes. Um, it's like a hub bus station where yeah. you can just then yeah. hop off and catch a little, like a little milk it. run to the like, moon. Like, oh, I yep. just got to, you know, take Step a break. Um, so uh, not only will this moon outpost allow for long-term lunar presence, but it will also serve as a launch pad to Mars and beyond, uh, Trudeau said. Um, so I like, I like infinity and beyond. It's kind yes. of cool. Yeah. Um, it's estimated that the outpost won't be ready until I think 2026 and will be part of a broader Canadian space strategy in which the government will invest over just over tw- $2 billion over 24 years. Um, so what specifically are we contributing to this project? Is it OPI? No, it's not OPI. <laughs> Is it... Um, it sounds like it's a robotic arm. It's another Canada arm. And I'm doing a robotic um, A very, very convincing arm. arm you look like gesture. one of those machines in a grocery store that my children always yeah, stare at prize. with the claw. And I always have to explain you never win anything and you need to keep walking. Um, yeah, so it sounds like this robotic arm. Because can- so, we already have a Canada arm 2. Yep, this will be Canada arm 3. Although I was a bit confused because it says that the Canada arm will be used to construct the space station but will also be attached or the the lunar gateway but will also be attached to it so that's like an amazing image like it's just going to like stick like it build itself this uh, the, the Canada arm that's on the the uh, space station the international space yeah. station now kind of does that like it yeah. plucks things out of it's amazing though it, it's like capsules that come up and affixes them and so yeah. on. Yeah, but it's it's sort of self-assembling. Like, yeah, there's going to be more romanticism around the arm. Oh yeah. Oh totally. But I mean, um, it, it sounds like where Canada's really obviously, and we know that's strong is is our artificial intelligence, and so that's where. Um, you know, we're going to, we're going to have our efforts played, but, um, I think our mode has sort of been like helper monkeys in helper space. Monkeys. Cause we're also doing, yeah. um, part of this Mars, Mars sample retrieval regime that's starting in 2020, where we have 
contributed one of the vehicles that's going to go retrieve samples and eventually try to bring them back to Earth for processing. So that seems to be our thing is we are the claw. Like the we are the claw we for are, international space effort. Symbolically, we are the claw. Um, context, this is um, the largest investment in, a, in space in over a decade. And it might be a dumb question here, but I, I was curious. Is the last time people were on the moon during Apollo 11? No. No. That, that was the first time we landed on the moon, but it has been a good long okay. time. Apollo 14 in yeah. 1972 was the end of the last time someone set foot on the moon, I believe. Okay, so not that. That, was, that wasn't that dumb. No, it's been, it's been 40 years. Okay, yeah. all right. Because <laughs> okay, going to um, the moon is really... It's confusing because there's been all these like, different phases well, of space yeah. exploration someone, and then things shut down. Is and, someone actually on the moon? Like There's things that go up, right? But I'm not going to try... To talk scientifically. Do you know what I think would be, you know what I think is neat though is when you think about the seismic aspect of those men landing on the moon in the first place mm. and the, the grainy video footage we see and the and the books and whatever, all of us, I believe in this room, are way too young to mm-hmm. have even been like existing on the planet when that happened. Right. So you could have a whole new generation that sort of marvels anew <gasps> at something true. that has actually well, already been done before, but just the very concept of it is still kind of mind blowing if you get to see it again. So that was that raises a good point. Are we in sort of like, if we think about the dynamics, the political international dynamics at play during that time, I was reminded of it when I watched First Man the other weekend, but are we in sort of the same thing where we're feeling the competition from Russia and China who are making it, you know, now China who, who's who's making advancements and other countries too, and now Canada's the first to, to partner in with the United States. I mean, it feels like we're kind of in this, the same dynamic, but just... Years yeah. later. We're kind of competing with each other. China landed a rover on the far side of the moon, which no one yeah. had ever done before, uh, just a matter of weeks ago. So I think there is a little bit of national slash kind of cultural civilizational pride right. going on. Like Trump said, he's like, I will pay whatever it takes to be the first yeah. on Mars. Oh, yeah, that hilarious anecdote from that book where he he just insisted to whoever his like space czar was. He was like, no, no, you need to get this done before 2020. <laughs> and the guy was yeah. like, that yeah. can't be done. Like, I don't yeah. care how many barrelfuls of cash you wheel up yeah. to my door and dump it. Like, not going to happen. We would have to actually leave now. And we don't <laughs> have a vehicle to it's, do it in. He's like, I don't know, just take yeah. a plane Amazing. up there. Um, but it's it's yeah, and there it it uh, there is a strong argument that sending people to the moon or people to Mars is not worth doing. That that it is because it, it's incredibly difficult, incredibly expensive, and, and incredibly dangerous. dangerous. Yeah. Incredibly dangerous, even though we're kind of accustomed to it. Um, and, you know, with space flights and so on, people just oh, they're up on the space yeah, station. Up, yeah. But the difference between sending up instruments and rovers and probes and people is gigantic. Right. And that we get more scientific value, more engineering value. We learn more about the universe at this point by sending. Uh, well, no, by sending oh. by sending machines, right, 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 because right. they can do the sensing and stuff, and yeah, possibly yeah. bring back samples rather than sending, sending up, you know, yeah. weak, fragile animals like ourselves that need Sacks to breathe and meat. yeah, drink and pee and all that, like all the stuff you yeah, got to do. That's true. But on the other hand, what are we here for? Well, well if that's it's right. not. And that's such a, I find that kind of such a beautiful dichotomy where there's absolutely enormous rational arguments that it's not worth it. And then there's 
but cool. Like, yeah. which is not a small thing. Like, I don't actually mean that glibly or facetiously at all. And I kind of think in between us talking about Oppie and, and then talking about this this week, um, I've been struck by, it, it's sort of an obvious thing, but even the nomenclature we use in space exploration, everything is opportunity, discovery, yes. Apollo. Like, there's kind of this, like, beautiful, yes. like, purity to it. Yeah. Bright that, that shining lights on this, everything. Like, everyone's a five-year-old kid who's it's like true. learning about the solar system the and their mind nerd. is blown. Yeah. yeah no. But I don't know how you quantify the or or prioritize the actual value of that is an interesting question. But it sounds like with the rise of automation and you know all this stuff like that that's where it's heading like that we're sending more robotic um, things out there, tools out there, yeah. right? Um, Human proxies, I guess. Yeah, and things that are able to do finer and finer things. Yes, right. Uh, that previously you just needed a person to do because yes. you didn't have the quality of processing or speed of transmission or whatever. It will be interesting because I read, once I was reading up on this, I saw that, um, like, to see what, what private companies and how they will interact with this sort of competition to get out there, like, Elon Musk's um, SpaceX, so the company is scheduled to send its Crew Dragon capsule on a dry run this weekend to the International Space Station. So, and then and then it has further plans to to to, to take out astronauts in July. So, like it's interesting to think about how private, you know, the private sector will will come into this as well. For for the moment, this is driven. I mean, I they I'm sure they imagine making a profit off getting stuff into orbit, satellites and other things over time for private clients. For the moment, though, I, I these are kind of lost leaders and largely driven by guys who think, oh, cool. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's and that's not an insignificant it's, no, it amount, like the branding opportunity alone, oh, right, God, is yeah. pretty solid. Yeah. All right. That's all for us today. Wowzers. Wowzers. It was a long one. Um, okay, handles, please. I have please. a feeling we're going to be saying that forever. <laughs> yeah, I know. Such a long I know. I am at David Reevely. And I am S at S Proudfoot. And I am at Sarah Turnbull. See you next time. The age of personal check is coming to a close. While tools such as Interact eTransfer have largely taken their place for personal use, Many businesses are still reliant on checks. 54% of businesses believe that they are spending too much time on payment processing. What will it take for companies to finally ditch the check? Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca.